let's get right to it today. This is the Madison Story Slam podcast. As always, I am your host, Adam Rosted. Hey, I just want to let you know that you can now find us on Facebook if you search Madison Story Slam. And Instagram and Twitter, we are at Story Slam Addison. That is like Story Slam, A-D-I-S-O-N. Today, on today's show, we are coming at you live from Johnson Public House. And my guest is Jim Birkenstadt, who is a music historian. He's got the nickname The Rock and Roll Detective. Uh, He's here to promote one of his books. It's called The Beetle Who Vanished, which is the story of Jimmy Nickel who filled in for Ringo when he had tonsillitis on their first big world tour in Australia. It was just 13 Days as a Beatle. It's a great book. We have a great chat, uh, obviously about the Beatles, but also about Madison. So tune in. Here's Jim and I at JPH. Environment. We've done a lot of them here at JPH, um, and the thing that I hear over and over from people is that the ambient sound of them being open really... Is kind of a cool because you know most yeah. podcasts are dead and it's in a silent room. Right. That's why I didn't want to do it in my office. I yeah. didn't mind doing it there, but I thought it'd be kind of cool. I'd love to be in this environment. Yeah. While we did it, I just thought. Yeah. Well, and fun. then the other thing is, is uh, what people tell me is it really makes it feel like you're overhearing a good conversation, oh, like kind of yeah. eavesdropping. Yeah. Uh, so I've enjoyed that part. I like that idea. Yeah. I've only done one. Uh, I interviewed Scott Resnick, who's running for mayor, and we did did his in his office, and it ended up being really good, but that's the only one that hasn't been either here. I did another one at uh, Ale Asylum, yeah. and then also one at Carbon 4 with the owners there. Yeah. So that, those were those were good, but... You yeah, should I, do Bridget Miniachi, too, sometimes. You know, I keep hearing that over and over, and so... She's a very interesting person. Yeah. And super cute, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I... You know, my goal, honestly, I'd like, I'd like yeah. to do all the candidates. It's, um, yeah, right. I'd love it if uh, Soglin would oh, come do and it. do it. I don't know if he would. Why? Uh, the, I, He's the, running for office. I know he is, but he doesn't need the exposure that the others need to appear on some rinky-dink podcast. Except for, you know, first of all, I don't think any podcast is rinky-dink because it has the potential of being shared yeah. around the world. Yeah. But even in, in your case, it has the potential of being shared throughout the whole city to, you probably kind of have a sense Certain of demographic. of your demographic. Yeah. And it, let's call it a younger demographic than I am. Mm-hmm. Those are people who might not care about voting until they hear a podcast That's with true. all three candidates, and yeah. then they'll go, oh, I definitely like that one. Yeah. So That's true. I think uh, if I were a mayor, I wouldn't turn down. Well, anything. I have I have tweeted at him, so uh, hopefully somebody He's out on there sees it. Facebook too. Oh, really? So you could friend him, which he'll friend anybody, yeah. and then send him a message. Yeah, that's true. Try that. Yeah, because you know, here's another thing, another tip. People, are, you know, like you tweeted me, and I was like oblivious. Yeah, I guess. If you don't use Twitter that often, which our our generation uses Facebook more often, yeah, then you may miss something. Because mm-hmm. I think I missed it, and then you sent me an email or something. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So uh, same thing might be true that you, you can tweet at people who all they're ever doing is tweeting out. Sure. 
because they're trying to get a certain message or product or service out there, but they don't really do the whole sort of socially interactive yeah. aspect of Twitter. Yeah. At our age, I'm talking about my sure. generation. But, you know, you so we're started. I, okay. I don't do much of an intro. We, right. we, we did, The conversation just happens. So, but let me tell everybody who's listening, uh, sitting here with Jim Birkenstadt, who is the rock and roll detective. That's how, first of all, how did you get that name? Well, I guess it goes back several years, but uh, it, it had to do with the fact that I was digging into um, the histories and mysteries deep within rock and roll history. Sure. And uh, I think it, it may have come from the time that I was at the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. And there was a function that night related to George Harrison. Okay. And so one of George's oldest friends, Klaus Vorman, was there. And Klaus is famous as being an old friend of the Beatles who befriended them in Hamburg, but also later went on to draw one of their album covers called Revolver that came out in 1966. Yeah. So he created that cover, and later he created their anthology cover of their box set that had all their rarities in it in the 90s. So the one of the head guys at Apple Corps, which is a Beatles company, mm-hmm. introduced me to Klaus Wurman at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I think he might have used that that moniker, Jim's our rock and roll detective, sure. and he helps us find impossible things that have been lost for the ages. Yeah. And that's when Klaus said, well, can you find me the original artwork for the Revolver album? Sure. And the uh, the guy from Apple said, oh, sure, Jim can find anything. So I felt a lot of pressure. But um, over the course... But did you pull through? I did pull through, yeah. In That's about a week's time, yeah. I actually found that the original artwork for the Revolver album cover that Klaus had created for the Beatles was framed and hanging on the living room wall of Joe Walsh, the okay. Eagles guitarist yeah. in Los Angeles. Wow. Yeah, so strange. Interesting. So that's strange how you got trail. the name. Yeah. So on Twitter, you're it's it at Rock Detective? Yeah. All right. Because yeah. I guess they have shorter handles. Yeah, they do. Yeah. But so uh, to kind of go back to talking about uh, your generation and Twitter, mm-hmm. you seem like you've got a pretty good grasp on what that means for your business and as uh, a publicity tool. I, I think I right. heard on, a, on another podcast you were on that you were talking about how um, if you're an author or if you're somebody who is trying to get something out there, you gotta you gotta be have the mindset of hey, you tweet something every day, you put something out there every day. Yeah. And I thought that that was interesting. That again, not to say you're old, but somebody of your generation would. It's not typical. Yeah. Right. And you know, I guess I'm lucky because our daughter uh, Rebecca Birkenstadt, she has a company called Worldly Strategies. Okay. And that. She has clients, and all she does is either teach them or do for them uh, the types of things they need to do in order to promote their product or service. Sure. So we sat down about two years before my book, uh, The Beetle Who Vanished, came out Mm -hmm. and created an entire online social media marketing plan. Yeah. That was amazing. And then as I learned how to do all the different aspects of social media, I really started to enjoy it, but I really realized 
you need a sustained period of time to have your name out there, to have your book out there, to have people talking about your book, etc., for it to actually sell books. Yeah. A lot of people know how now to self-publish through, say, Create Space at Amazon or one of the others, but then they just throw it up on the page and they wonder why no one's why, buying Why it's not selling. Yeah. yeah. So I took the idea she uh, taught me from her company, and I also started to develop my own techniques that I learned just from being on those pages all day long. So right now it takes me about 30 minutes and I can reach 100,000 Beatle fans around the world. Yeah. And it doesn't cost a nickel. Yeah. So, you know, you learn some really interesting techniques and you learn how to tie together, uh, you know, the use of MailChimp to an email list and and then how can I add to that email list? Uh, hmm. You know, what are some techniques I can do in other social media areas to get people to give me their email address? Or if I go to a book uh, signing, yeah. put out a sheet and get everybody's emails. But it really helps because, you know, you might have a sale or a promotion of some sort and people jump all over that because they got an email yeah or because you put an interesting picture up on facebook so. yeah do you find uh for like email lists is it uh again a person of a certain generation that is because i i think if you talk to most um uh, people who are trying to promote things email lists are kind of going out it, it is very much a twitter and well a Facebook it's page going world. out in general but not if you produce a professional newsletter sure uh for again i don't know that maybe uh 20 and 30 something people respond to the marketing of an email yeah but people 40 and above still do yeah absolutely. and so you have to do you know a little of everything to get all the different age groups but i found if i made like for example i found a guy who does a hilarious imitation online of I, Paul McCartney. I saw that. Yeah. I, I've, I've been a fan of that guy's before I saw your yeah, site. Stevie so, yeah, Stevie Ricks yeah. is his name. Yeah. And he was nice enough to do a, uh, a little brief thing called Paul McCartney Loves the Beetle Who Vanished. And not only did it get a huge viewing at you know YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and all that and LinkedIn, but when I sent it out as part of a um, MailChimp professionally yeah. produced newsletter it killed in terms of um, book sales yeah i mean there was a clear spike sure on the two days after that that came out i think that's it's interesting Hilarious. when you get certain guests on like for me when i get certain guests on the podcast you know i can go in and look at the spike i've had some guests that you know do a certain level but like like kevin farley suddenly i spiked uh, a ton, and so it's interesting. It's interesting how things like that can suddenly affect your sales, your yeah. your your page traffic, all that kind of thing. Yeah, and then we had fun with uh, you know, I didn't really know how to do Photoshop, so again, I reached out to my kids. Yeah, uh, our son Brad is a very good Photoshopper, and our daughter Becca also is pretty good. And so I I had a picture of me shaking hands with President Obama. Sure. Well. His right hand is shaking my right hand. Yeah. But his left hand's on almost on top of my shoulder okay. in the photo. And I thought, oh, that's where the book's going to go. <laughs> and so you throw your book up there in his hand. Yeah. And it looks like he's promoting my book. Yeah. You know, I did the same with old Beatle pictures. Uh, they were reading a newspaper, and I'd replace that front of the newspaper with, with the, the book. book. And, you know, so it's all just entertaining and yeah. fun. And, yeah. Uh, so, you know, why did you, why were you shaking President Obama's hand? 
Well, I was at some fundraiser before he was pre- actually president. Oh, okay, sure. It was here in Madison at somebody's home. Yeah. And uh, I, I saw I just, that picture and I was like, Yeah. I just thought, well, you know, everybody's shaking his hand. I'll go shake his hand. There you go. Yeah. Um, so before we keep talking about, we keep referencing your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about. Um, that I mean, so you've written three books, or yeah, four? three or four. I, well, one's still not published. I wrote a book with Scotty Moore, okay. who was uh, Elvis Presley's first lead guitarist. Yeah, uh, and that one's still not published. But the others that are are um, Black Market Beatles, which was the first book I wrote. It's um, a book about the lost recordings of the Beatles, yep. the ones that didn't come out originally. Um, the second one was called Nevermind Nirvana, and it's the behind-the-scenes story of how Nirvana created perhaps the most important rock album of the 90s, Nevermind. I, I'm just going to go ahead and take out the word perhaps. It is. Okay. It is the most important rock album of the 90s. Uh, and it just, you know, it changed everything. Mm-hmm. It changed the way a lot of, uh, of, a, of how Gen Xers felt about themselves and their life and their future. It changed radio station formats yeah you know it, it blew up on MP, MTV it knocked Michael Jackson off the charts it knocked country rock off the top of the charts yeah it just took over yeah. and then how many you know then we had all these hootie and the grunge lights <laughs> doing right. all this sort of you know light versions of, of grunge we had all these copycats and even yeah. I remember uh after Butch Vig produced that album, he said to me that he was getting calls from polka bands saying, we want to sound like Nirvana, we Jeez. produce our album, or, you know, famous uh, people. And Neil Young called him, and, and Butch turned him down. Said, yeah. I want to sound exactly like this album. And, you know, to a producer, he's just trying to reflect the artistic nature of that artist yeah. and their, their, their sonic dream. You don't want to make every artist sound the same. You, exactly. As a producer, you just want to take what each individual artist is doing and have them do it the best they can. Right. You know. So that's why he didn't want to take any of those yeah. other odd jobs because, you know, Nirvana was Nirvana. That yeah. was their, their thing. And so he wanted that to be unique to them and then he do other things with other people. Yeah, so. and so then that's the Nevermind Nirvana, and then your book after then, that is this recent one, right? Right, yeah. Which and is The Beatle Who Vanished. The Beatle Who Vanished. It's a story about a guy named Jimmy Nickel, mm-hmm. who um, was sort of an unknown session and live drummer in London in the uh, 1960s, and one day he got a phone call from the Beatles producer, George Martin, to come down to Abbey Road. And it was to actually replace Ringo Starr, their drummer, who had just um, gotten tonsillitis and was in the hospital for two weeks. Nowadays, it would probably be an outpatient. Yeah, go to the pharmacy. Well, and he didn't even he didn't even have his tonsils removed. No, not at that. It, time. it was like six months later. That right. Had, yeah, you're yeah. talking to a Beatles fan. You so. are an expert. <laughs> I'm not an expert. About 99 percent of the Beatles fans don't know that. Yeah, but that's true. Yeah, and so the Beatles had uh, a crisis on their hands mm-hmm. because. They were about to start their first ever world tour, and Ringo's gone. Yeah. And uh, the show had to go on. Back then, you couldn't get out of a contract or no. concerts uh, uh, because of illness. So they had to find someone, and uh, they found this guy, Jimmy Nichols. So it's his story of how he climbed the ladder, how and why he got to be chosen. 
and then uh, what does a guy do after he's been to the top of the entertainment world? Yeah. For the, how do you for recover? The, how do you recover for the rest of your life when you're only 25? And so yeah. how do you live with the fact that you had those 15 minutes of fame? And that's maybe the most fascinating part of the whole story. Because he, did, but what he did was to vanish. That was how he dealt with his yeah. issues. But he didn't vanish right away. Like I mean, no. he, he was in other bands. He tried to make a go right. of it, and it kind of seems like at a certain point he was like, "Well, I, I can't make it." So, uh, and I think yeah. I've heard you say. So I haven't read your book. I apologize. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I've heard you say in other interviews, like. At any period in his life where he wanted to make a change, he would literally just vanish. He'd just walk out walk the door, out tell the door. nobody where he was going, and start anew somewhere else. That's right. And and he really did try to make it, but I think the problem was maybe he kept trying to compete against the Beatles. Okay. He, instead of just, you know, sort of playing within himself and his abilities, mm-hmm. he wanted to be bigger and better than them. And I think that... You know, we all know that that didn't happen. And no. It didn't happen for hundreds of bands yeah. who all wanted maybe be bigger than the Beatles. You yeah. Know? Just wasn't meant to be. Um, but it, yet he still worked very hard. He became a producer and arranger. Sure. Um, he taught music. He had a lot of interesting uh, jobs in his career. He was an A&R guy trying to find famous um, artists in Mexico because at the time he was there Mexico didn't have any original rock okay. people they were just doing covers they yeah. were like cover bands yeah. and they wanted to find an original rock band you know but that's how he got hooked up, hooked up with the Beatles too right like he was he was a session drummer and it was basically a, a producer saying hey i i just want to throw these musicians together to do Beatles covers because right. we can sell them and make money off of them yeah. and, and so that's how he kind of got hooked up with the Beatles right well it's it's how he was prepared to okay. be called by them. That's not how they... They didn't know he was doing that at the time. Okay. That was sort of a lucky coincidence. About six months before they called him, he had learned all of Ringo's parts yeah. by doing these cover songs for these hokey cover albums that were meant to fool the kids. Sure. Uh, in fact, it was called the Top Six label because they would give you a 45 single which normally has one song on each side, but these had three on each side, okay. and they were meant to fool you into thinking you were getting six I, Beatles songs for oh, like man. 79 cents. <laughs> so he, he learned all the parts, and what happened was uh, around March of 64, he actually was doing a studio session for one of Brian Epstein's other artists, Brian being the Beatles manager. Yeah. And uh, so Brian had an opportunity to see his professionalism, and at the same time Jimmy got a, a live gig with uh, Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames. Georgie Fame's a longtime friend of um, Madison uh, musician, artist Ben Sidron. Okay, yeah. They're all buddies. Yeah. So Georgie Fame hired Jimmy Nickel to be his drummer and they were playing at a place called the Flamingo Club in Soho in London. Sure. And it was the hottest live act at hmm. the time in all of London. And so, like, the Beatles would go watch the Who, the Stones. When they weren't touring, everyone would go watch the Georgie Fame Band. They yeah. would go until 6 in the morning. Sure. So McCartney was there many times, and he was a friend of Georgie Fame's. So McCartney was also then aware of Jimmy Nichols' ability as a live drummer. So it, the funny thing is that Nickel was actually the third guy asked 
to join the Beatles and replace Ringo yeah. when they had to go on tour. So that was kind of an interesting. You know, they didn't think of him at first, but once his wasn't name, the first choice. Yeah, but the second guy who said no, who was clearly strictly a session drummer, he said you ought to check with Jimmy Nickel, and sure. then Paul actually said, "Oh yeah, I've seen him." And then Paul called Georgie Fame and said, "Hey, can we have your drummer to go to Australia?" Yeah, so. <laughs> and, and it was just thirteen days, right? Yeah, I mean. That's crazy. Uh, for 13 days, you know, I, I've heard you refer to it 13 days as a Beatle. You're a Beatle. For th- yeah. I don't refer to it that way because, yeah. uh, you know, I think people on the Internet especially argue about the fifth Beatle or how right. many Beatles are there. Is Brian Epstein a Beatle? Who's or, a Beatle? Who's not? The Beatles are John, Paul, Ringo, and George. In my in my right. head, you know. Um, but by Facebooking those issues, you get your <laughs> book's name out there really well. Yes. Because everybody argues over it and they're like, oh, what's this book about? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I just, I can't imagine, because they took him on tour and it was very important for Brian Epstein that he was like, he's a Beatle for these 13 days. Yeah, treat him like He's that. riding in the cars. He's, you know, in doing the, the interviews, he's yeah. he's doing everything. Press conferences. But I mean, was he? Did because it sounded like they got him and then they went. So there wasn't. It yeah. didn't seem like there was much time to be like, "Hey, let's prep you for what this is going to be like." Oh, was there was no like, prep. Go. He, the, he did this tryout for the Beatles in the afternoon, and the next morning at seven a.m., he was picked up in the limo and taken to the airport, and they flew to uh, the Netherlands. Yeah. So there was no time to prepare. I mean, that's insane. I know. How and do you plus go? You from don't being... even know each other socially. Yeah. Because <laughs> he was from London, they were from Liverpool. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, like. I, I know that uh, he kind of felt like I, I don't know I don't know how exactly how to say this I, I would imagine that the rest of the crew the rest of you know John Paul and George um, especially John and Paul probably kind of like tried to take the piss out of him at times and like kind of we're kind of poking fun at it like you're not actually Beatle like they, they might not have like come out and said that but I I just feel like those guys back in that day had an attitude about who they were. They knew they were headed to the top for the next 127 years or whatever, you know. Um, And I'm sure there was a little bit of uh, almost like middle school kind of like, ha-ha, poking fun at you that you're not... Well, I would disagree. Really? Yeah, and the reason I would is that I interviewed many people who were on that tour. <laughs> I, I, I suppose. I suppose, <laughs> I suppose I should, that's cheating. I, I can't say for sure this is what happened when you've talked to everybody right. who's been on that and, tour. You know, like other players in the bands and promoters and things like that. Uh, you know, and not many people are alive, but the people who are alive, I've talked to. Yeah, and. They were of the opinion that John and Paul were trying very hard to make him feel a part of the group, at least socially. Sure. And even on stage, uh, John would, because the screaming was so loud, it was frequent that, whether it be Ringo or Jimmy Nickel, would get off the beat. Sure. Because you couldn't hear what the other instruments are doing. And... And so John would turn around and and very 
demonstratively show when he was hitting on the two and the four yeah. with his rhythm so that Jimmy could get back in line with him. So he was conscious, John was conscious of wanting to make Jimmy feel like, let's pull this thing together. And, yeah. and when they were... But, but when don't they you were, think that uh, was more for the, the Beatles' image? But... It, well, wasn't, I mean, it wasn't so much for on stage, Jimmy's I mean, e- ego or, or, or to on make stage, him feel I'm sure. Okay. Yeah, but w- when they were off stage, yeah. they included him in the pub crawl sure. and the, they went into the red light district in uh, Amsterdam. I mean, he did everything they did. But I, I still wonder if that's more about the Beatles' image because, you know... Uh, well, that wasn't known as their image at the time. Sure. That was all hidden from the newspapers. Yeah. Everybody covered up for the Beatles' nighttime activities. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the interesting thing, though, really, is that this was the time when I really, it really hit home how they liked him and treated him. And that was the Beatles, as you may know, uh, had played in Hamburg with a guy named Tony Sheridan, who mm-hmm. they really looked up to. And yeah. he, he was a Brit from London. Well, by coincidence, after Amsterdam, the Beatles had to fly backwards to London and then take another plane to Hong Kong. Yeah. When they got on the Hong Kong flight, one of the flight attendants said, one of your friends is in back in coach. Maybe you'd like him to come up. And it turns out it was Tony Sheridan was on the same flight. Sure. So he comes up front and uh, sees that Jimmy Nichol is with the Beatles. And he's thrilled because he had played with Jimmy Nickel in bands and on tours for five or ten years before the Beatles even knew yeah. what they were doing. <laughs> and before they'd even met Tony Sheridan in Hamburg, he was playing with Jimmy Nickel. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, the Beatles had a great respect for that first generation of British rockers. Okay. And when they found out that he was friends with Tony Sheridan, it just suddenly gelled from a social standpoint. Jimmy was like brought into the club. Uh, and this was very early on in those 13 days. It was like maybe yeah. the second or third day. Huh. So from then on, I saw things in newsreels like Paul putting his arm around Jimmy as they were walking out to a stage or to do something. And I found, too, that uh, John and Jimmy were had little side jokes at, at uh, press conferences at the table. Sure. George didn't really warm up to Jimmy but showed him respect. And that was because George thought it was a bad idea to go out on tour without Ringo without Ringo and so he was very loyal in that respect so it, you know it's it's a very interesting dynamic to suddenly yeah. be thrown in and hope that you can get along socially and professionally yeah but did didn't the tour kind of end badly for Jimmy like it, it, it did end on a bad note because Epstein hadn't been there most of the time. And okay. Epstein was like the worst babysitter you'd ever want to have. <laughs> and when he showed up with Ringo in Melbourne, uh, the first thing they all did was go out on a balcony and all five waved to the fans. It was the only time you'll ever see two Beatle drummers sure. in a group picture. Yeah, uh, And then they went inside to have a press conference. At the press conference, not only did the TV frame cut Jimmy out of the picture and yeah. just pull, show John, Paul, George, and Ringo, but also the questions, none of the questions were any longer directed at Jimmy. Well, so he started a sign. Well, that's right. But yeah. Jimmy thought, well, what's going on here? You know, I'm still here. Yeah. Jimmy started a little side convo with the reporter who sat down at the table on the side, and his voice started to interrupt the other Beatles. Sure. 
which drove Brian Epstein crazy because, you know, it was bad manners and yeah. it was all about good manners. So yeah. uh, one of the drummers in another band called Sounds Incorporated, who I interviewed, said uh, after that press conference, Epstein just blew up at Jimmy Nickel and said, you're done, you go to your room, you pack, and you're going home tomorrow. And Epstein said, well, no, I was hoping to fly to Sydney. Yeah, because uh, Jimmy Nickel like, met somebody, yeah. like, met a musician. He met a musician, a singer named Frances Fay, who yeah. was popular at the time with Capitol Records. And she said, yeah, come back to Sydney, and uh, we'll have you sit in as a drummer, and then we'll go back to America, and maybe you can record with me. So it was all going to be this great stuff. Yeah. Didn't happen because Epstein said, no, I bought you a one-way ticket to London, and that's where you're headed tomorrow morning. Interesting. So he rebelled. He was upset. He was a very independent, spirited guy. Yeah. And he had been allowed during the tour, because he wasn't that recognizable, all the other guys would let him sneak out at night if he wanted and sure. check out towns. Well, now that Epstein was there, that wasn't allowed. It was go to your room and pack your bag. <laughs> so he snuck out that last night, uh, 13th of June, 1964, and he goes out and he finds a bar and he's just having a drink all alone, thinking about you know the good and bad yeah. of what had just transpired. All of a sudden he hears his car pull up and brakes screeching and two of the Beatles road managers get out and run in and go, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I'm not a Beatle anymore. I'm just having a drink. And yeah. he said, you are a Beatle until we put you on that plane. Man. So it just ended. It had been great, and it ended kind of badly. I think also in the back of his mind, he was thinking, gee, if Ringo doesn't come back, maybe they like me now. I'm a good drummer. I think I'm a better drummer. Maybe they'll take me. Because yeah. just two years earlier, the Beatles had dumped Pete Best for Ringo. Now sure. it was two years later. Maybe it's time for another change. I mean, this is what's, I think, going through his head. And bands do cycle through drummers. Like, they to do. This day, that's, Isn't that's always that kind of a drummer that is Same in through. Nirvana. Look yeah. how they cycled through a lot of drummers before they found Dave Grohl. Yeah. So uh, it's just kind of an interesting dynamic that didn't go so well at the end. And Yeah. So. I, but they gave, they gave him a, a gold watch. Right. Uh, and the, the way that I have read it uh, is it was it was a genuine gift. But it was also kind of the way I've read it online. It, it was also kind of like, "Ha ha, you're not a Beatle anymore." No, I think that's the wrong interpretation. I think the joke was, in those days, a person was given a watch after loyally working for a company for like forty years, yeah, 50, fifty years, and yeah. you're fifty or whatever. We're going to retire you. Here's a gold watch, and so the joke was as if he had been with them. Sure. For many years, and now we're retiring you. Thank you for your service, and here's your gold watch. Yeah. I don't think it was, oh, we don't like you or anything negative. I think they meant it in a in a positive, humorous way. Yeah. But over time, Jimmy, I think, took it in a negative well, light. Well, bitterness does that. When yeah. you're bitter, it, it tends to transform. It twists things. Yeah. 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 Exactly. All right. So, I mean, we're definitely not done talking about the Beatles, but... I don't want to just focus on the Beatles. Okay. I'm interested in you. It's Madison Story Slam, so we like to hear stories from the people we're talking about. And so I know that you started out as a lawyer. You were born in Winnetka? Illinois? Yeah, Illinois. Uh, which, for those listening, they might know is where the house from the Home Alone movie is. Oh. Uh, yeah. Oh, neat. Yeah, in Winnetka. So I was, I was born in Evanston. Oh, okay. And, I went to uh, school there, too. Oh, really? Northwestern? At Northwestern? Yeah. yeah. Cool. I was there for seven months and then moved here. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, but you were a lawyer? 
Yeah, I was a. I like to call myself a recovering attorney. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so I was an attorney in Illinois, a trial attorney, and then I came here. Yeah. In 1985, and got married, and worked for a law firm here, Axley Brennelson downtown, sure. as a litigation attorney. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, took a job with my wife's family out in Sun Prairie at the Cheeseman at the Wisconsin Cheeseman. I grew up in Sun Prairie. Yeah, so yeah. I was the general counsel for them. And okay, wore many hats. Yeah, which is fun to do in a private business. Sure. So how does a lawyer from Chicago mm-hmm. become the rock and roll detective? Like, well, that's a good question. I, uh, you know, uh, working, for those of you who don't know who it, the Wisconsin Cheeseman was, right? Was? Was. Yeah. yeah. Um, for it, 60 years. Yeah, for a long yeah. time. Uh, it was like cheese and meats, like gift baskets, right? Yeah, and chocolates. We had a chocolate factory. Out yeah. There. So how do you go from lawyer to cheese, meat, and chocolate guy to rock and roll detective guy? Well, I think when I was a kid and the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan 50 years ago last February, yeah, um, I was just pulled over by the band, and I started following them, and I thought, hmm, maybe I can work for them someday. That would yeah. be kind of cool. And... You know, I just kept in the back of my mind while I, like, went through the sort of standard career path thing and ended up a lawyer. But I I never stopped writing articles, researching books, you know, I got into books and things. So I, I also thought, you know, writing articles and books and things about favorite rock musicians might also allow me to meet these people who sure. I like. So and that that's turned out really well. Yeah. So um, I don't know, it just it was just something where when uh, the company was sold, I decided that I would and I had been doing all this rock and roll detective stuff before that, but yeah. it was just sort of a side hobby thing. But I just thought, well I might as well make it my second career. Yeah. And and the great thing about having been a lawyer is it helps you Research and it helps you learn how to interview people, sure, and listen to what they're saying, and then that gives you follow up questions. No, no different than an interviewer, really, mm-hmm. who hears something and then rolls off of that idea into another line of questioning or uh, deeper into the same line of questioning. Yeah. So, I think all of those things helped me in this, you know, six years of research to find out what happened to the beetle who vanished, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's all just legal background, I think. Hmm. Research and writing. Yeah. I, I mean, I can see, because for a case, you've got to, you, you got to know stuff. You, you got to know your side of the, and the facts on well, your and side. Well, not even only on your side. You, you'd like to know the facts on their side. Right. Well, or anticipate know. what they might be. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would imagine as a researcher for a book, it would, it, it's kind of a natural uh, progression think, there. Yeah, I think it is that. And I, I think I was always interested in history. I think I took a lot of uh, history courses mm-hmm. at Northwestern and, you know, just kind of was always fascinated by that. And I thought, hey, combining rock music and history, that, you know, that's a passion right there. Yeah. So um, I wonder about outside of the Beatles. Uh, I mean, are you interested in bands? I'm Like, I know you wrote the Nirvana book. Right. Um, but I, I would say probably I could say with assurance that the Beatles are 
your number one band like yeah. that you're interested in. Yes, that's But, right. like, do you aspire to do books or whatever about... Because you said you have an unpublished Elvis book. Yeah, a book about uh, Elvis Presley that was written with uh, Elvis's guitarist, Daddy Moore. Because I thought, well, you know, the... Uh, Black Market Beatles book sort of dealt with the 60s, never yeah. mind Nirvana, dealt with the 90s, uh, Jimmy Nickel, that was that was kind of an interesting book because it spanned the 50s yeah, all the way up time. until now. Yeah. That was interesting. And uh, so I do actually have a, another book that I'm just now starting to write, mm-hmm. and it's not going to be one continuous narrative, but each chapter will be a different sort of rock era era of okay. rock history or and or different artists okay uh, so each chapter will be different but it, I like the idea of getting into more and different uh, groups and finding out more about them and more about maybe a mystery or something that went on with them sure yeah so that's that's the latest project it seems like a pretty interesting book like yeah. I, I love history too like right. um, in school it was always I hated math was terrible at it me too uh, language arts and history loved it yeah I could I, I could do those classes all day right um, and then as a music fan I'm a musician and been a big music fan my whole life my dad instilled that in me and so combining those two things that, yeah. that would be a good book I'd love that what um, instruments do you play I could pretty much play anything you put in front of me wow um, so I'm self-taught piano guitar drums uh, bass uh, my first French actual, horn well my first actual <laughs> instrument so first first thing like I ever really played was a trumpet fifth grade took band oh okay hated band because I can't read music. It, it makes oh. no sense to me. Yeah. It might as well be Chinese. And uh, so I was flunking band, <laughs> which as a fifth grader is pretty sad because it's yeah. pretty easy. It's traumatic. And But then I realized, uh, I don't remember how I, I just, I suddenly, it was like an epiphany. It was like, all I have to do is play what the person next to me is playing. And I was like, I can do that. Like I would just hear it and then be like, no, I know how to do that because mm-hmm. I can. I know how to make those notes. Yeah. Um, but so, like, my main uh, instruments would be guitar and piano. Um, but so I've I played shows around Madison. I do cool. I, I kind of call it like folk pop, mm-hmm. kind of. I write mostly really depressing, sad songs. I have several about death. <laughs> Well, you know, look at garbage. Only happy when it rains. That's right. <laughs> so, but, you know, I, I'm also, um, I consider myself to be a kind of a funny guy. And so, like, when I do play shows, I kind of take the piss out of myself and say, <laughs> like, I always be like, well, I hope you didn't come here to be happy because <laughs> this next song is about divorce. <laughs> so. Uh, That's fun. Yeah. You know what? I haven't, I haven't, um, music hasn't been my focus for, like, the last year. Oh. I've been really working on Story Slam. and Right. Um, I, this is this is a lot of fun because uh, music is hard. <laughs> music it's hard to plug away and not see any results, right? Because the only real result as a musician is to be known and to be making money. Uh-huh. With this, um, so our first podcast was two months ago, November second, and every step of the way, it seems like I'm accomplishing something. I'm getting nice. guests. I'm getting more listens on every single episode I'm, you know yeah. so it feels like stuff is happening I, music is still important to me but uh, it's kind of on the back burner for sure, now, sure. so 
Uh, are you a musician at all? Uh, I don't think so. No, I play so. a little ukulele, but I don't think I qualify. <laughs> I think everybody plays a little ukulele. Yeah, it's just fun to have a couple tunes yeah. so that if you're at a party and you pick it up and you play it, and yeah. you leave them wanting more because you only know two tunes. <laughs> <laughs> that's the key right there. Yeah, that's the game. Um, so you said you moved here in like 85? Yeah, yeah. 85? Um why? Just to get married? To get married. Your wife was from here? Yeah, my wife was from here. Her okay. family is from here. And uh, my parents uh, moved to San Diego after I started working as a lawyer in sure. Chicago around that time. So, yeah. you know, I thought, well, my family's out there and my Were you future, an only future child? wife's up here. No, I have a brother and sister. Okay. They live in San Diego. Okay. Kind of coincidentally, though, not... Not because my parents were yeah. They were actually already out there. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's interesting. For two different reasons, they, you know, just coincidence. You de- and you decided the sun and the ocean were not for you. Yeah, yeah. I really like gray, cloudy, sub-30, For at least six zero. to seven months out yeah. of the year. Yeah. yeah. I can't blame you. I like that. I actually just saw somebody uh, posted on Facebook today. It was like, I'm going to ask this again. Why, why when, when we were settling this country, did somebody stop here? and be like, oh, it's freezing. I think I'll stay here. And I want to be like, probably probably for the same reason that uh, people like you still live here. Like, yeah. it's just, they were used to it. It's here. but they, There were Norwegians and Swedes. They were yeah. they were fine with the cold. Right, you know, right. They didn't know life could be better. <laughs> <laughs> well, the key is to uh, escape every now and then yes. in the winter. Yeah. Um, so, I am always curious about how Madison has changed. And since... Um, you're a music fan. I wonder how you've seen the Madison music scene change. You know, uh, that's a good question. I mean, there's certain bands that I might have been attracted to over the years, and they come and go. Of course, there was Spooner and yeah. Firetown and and Garbage, and uh, then there were bands that would come through town. You know, mm-hmm. I remember the first time a little band from California called Camper Van Beethoven came through in the 1980s. And it was sort of psychedelic, humorous pop, rock, and then everything else thrown in. It was a minestrone. Sure. And, uh, you know, I was like, wow, I was so lucky I got to see them in this little hole-in-the-wall place. Um, So, I don't know, I I think it's, it's a... It's a good city because we have a lot of different venues of different sizes. Yeah. And um, I think there's a pretty good group of music lovers here because I, I can't tell you how many times I've been to concerts over the years since 85 to the present. And one of the things that you always seem to hear is, wow, you guys are such a great audience. Yeah. The musicians... Um, but when have you ever heard a musician say, you guys are a terrible audience? No, well, sometimes they don't say... <laughs> they don't say anything. Any, I mean, I've been to concerts in other cities where the the crowd is just... It's like they're flatlined. They're yeah. all dead. Yeah. And you're like, what's wrong with these it's people? It's terrible. But in Madison, there's, there's always an enthusiastic audience that really loves and appreciates music, whether it's local or... Yeah. Uh, or touring through. And like uh, now, I think my favorite local band is Steely Dane, okay. which plays, uh, of course, Steely Dan covers. But what's neat about it is there are all these different artists from all over Dane County that have to come together and learn these very complex songs for their shows every now and then. Sure. And there are different people coming and going on stage 
you know, they might have three drummers, uh, four lead vocalists, because, you know, one guy sounds, guy or gal sounds better on a certain song yeah. than another. And different background vocalists. And it's just, to me, it's a fascinating concept that all these, you know, 35 people or something come yeah. together, rehearse, and are able to pull off. I mean, if it wasn't very good, I wouldn't be going back. <laughs> and that they do such a good job of replicating Steely Dan that yeah. it's kind of an interesting uh I I never show. heard of them. The, oh, it's yeah. Steely Dane. Dane, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah, like, I think wh- wh- where do they play when they they've played the um High Noon Saloon. Okay. They've played the Barrymore. They played the Atwood Fest. Okay. Um this past summer. I don't know, they're they just sort of you know, kind of hit and miss. Yeah. But yeah, I like you know, it's just nice to just go, say, to the High Noon Saloon some night, not really know who you're going to see, yeah, and be surprised. I find that that's very true, what you said about Madison, is we have an enthusiasm for live performance. Yeah. It doesn't even have to be music. Um, live performance, I don't, I, you know, I don't know what it is about Madison. I, I don't know if it's just there are a lot of people who are performers that, that then appreciate performance, but mm-hmm. definitely, like, um, we are a city that... Um, embraces that and and yeah. absolutely show up one night to a place and well I just know there's going to be music here so I'm going to show up yeah and uh, be surprised and in, even if it's not your cup of tea of music people are still really kind and friendly and oh yeah and will respond to you yeah like hey it takes balls to get up on stage I and know. and do anything uh, and I think Madison has respect for for anybody that can do that which I think is really awesome yeah I mean I think maybe that's the reason why People like um, Clyde Stubblefield and Freddie Johnston have yeah. settled here in Madison, yeah, because they weren't from here originally. Yep, but they saw something magical about the uh, the people here and the place, and, and decided to make this their home. Sure, and I can't tell you how many times I've gone to see either Clyde Stubblefield or, or Freddie Johnston in town, and it, yeah, it always blows me away. Yeah. Great stuff. I wonder. Um, so we're talking about local musicians. Uh, what are some of your favorite national acts, touring musicians? Hmm. Like if somebody's yeah. if, if if somebody's coming as close as Milwaukee, who does it got to be that you're going to go? Um, well, I like the Black Keys. Yeah, I like the Foo Fighters. I like um, Arctic Monkeys. Mm-hmm. Florence and the Machine. Yeah. Saw her at Hollywood Bowl with our son, Brad. Really? It just completely oh, blew me away. I bet. It blew me away. And, of course, just being at the Hollywood Bowl was yeah. amazing, too. That would be a fun place to see anybody. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, well, a band that keeps coming back that evolved from Camper Van Beethoven is Cracker, and they were just mm-hmm. here at the Orpheum. Yeah. Went to see them. It was a fantastic show. Awesome. Um... I'd like the traveling Wilburys to reunite. There aren't the key players are, are kinda, no longer with kinda, us. Yeah, uh, getting thin there. They're the only supergroup that never broke up. <laughs> they never argued. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. The Foo Fighters. Uh, you oh, said that. Oh, man, I I tell people all the time. So as a Beatles fan, um, Beatles are my favorite band. Just mm-hmm. they just are. 
but I tell people all the time, if there's any band that has the staying power that the Beatles have, it's the Foo Fighters. Yeah, you uh, might be but, right. But then, but then, like I look at like a band like U2. U2 has been around for 30 years already. Yeah, they played here in a little tiny club. Really? Yeah, in the 80s. So yeah. did REM. There are bootlegs available. That, that would be that would have been a really awesome show. Both of those to yeah. see. Um, They're baby bands at one time. Yeah, uh, but so like Foo Fighters, I I will never forget the one time I've seen them. It was uh, like at the Harley Davidson uh, like hundred hundred year hundred fifty oh. year anniversary. I don't remember how old they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but my friend called me and I, I ignored his call and went to voicemail because uh, I was in my basement and didn't have good reception and then listened to his voicemail and uh, he goes hey hey Adam it's uh, it's John I'm at the mall uh, trying to give away some concert tickets that I won at school today at MATC I, I'm just trying to give them away because uh, I can't go but it's some band I've never heard of uh, called uh, the 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 food the the Foo Fighters? I, I don't I don't know. I've never heard of them. And I hung up the phone and called them back and I said, Stop! Stop what you're doing. I will be there in ten, ten minutes. minutes to pick them up. And uh, it was like it was probably six fifteen and the Foo Fighters were going on at seven o'clock. Wow. I got there in the middle of the first song. So <laughs> Good, that's pretty quick. Yeah, I was Best show I've ever been to. Well, no. I, my dad and I went to see Paul McCartney last year. Was it oh, last yeah. year or two years ago that he was in? He's he's here every year. It's he was, he every was, other He played year. at Miller Park. And yeah. Holy crap. Like, what a show. The guy is 70 plus. Yeah. Uh, he might as well for three hours have been running full speed on a treadmill. I know. I, I can't imagine the kind of things that he's pumping through his body to be able to do that. He just runs on adrenaline. I mean, he tires out the, the younger guys in his band. Yeah. I, I mean, it was an incredible, incredible show, uh, even if you're not a Beatles fan. Right. Um, yeah. I, like, I, I could I could sit and think about that show for a long time. Oh, yeah. Because it seriously was three hours, and, like, if you went hoping that he played a song, he did. Right, right. Um what a great show. The, uh, the best show I ever saw was Paul McCartney and Wings Yeah, in May of 1976 at Chicago Stadium. And wow. I got to sit in the little uh, orchestra pit okay. that they had for photographers. Sure. Or something. Yeah. And I didn't know about the explosions on Live and Let Die because <laughs> he had never done it before. And there were those pots right in front of my face. Oh, jeez. And I was on just a little folding chair right by his piano. Yikes. And he gets the hands up, live and let die. And he hits the chords, and I couldn't see anything. I was blown <laughs> off my chair. I was blinded temporarily and just flat on my back. That's and I was like, funny. wow, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a, a really cool experience. It was great. And then between, there was like a little break in the set. And he came down the steps, and he said, I was with my buddy Gary, and he said, how you guys doing? We're like, wow, yeah, great. <laughs> and he said, how's the show so far? And Linda was there, too. And I said, it's the best show that I will ever go to. Yeah. That was what I said to him. Yeah. Time. And he, he was really happy about that. Yeah. Man, I, you know, I can't, I can't imagine... I, this I, it's great to see him in his prime. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and still, I tell people all the time, I meeting celebrities is not. I don't think I would be a huge deal to me. Mm-hmm. If I met Paul McCartney, I'd probably start crying. 
You know what? You probably would be. He would put you at ease in about five seconds. Yeah. He, I don't know. I would... He looks you straight in the eye. He wants to hear what you have to say. Yeah. And the, the people who he said before this many times. He says, you know. You do all this stuff, and you run around, albums, tours, albums, tours, all these things. And he said, then someone stops you on the street, yeah. and they're practically crying, and they thank you because your music changed their life. Yeah. He said, you know, that's what it's all about. Sure. You know, the, 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 that you've given someone a good feeling in their life. And yeah. He says, that's what it really is all about. I had a friend who was in a <clears throat> band from Chicago, and in one of their songs, the lyric is... I long to write a song that the world cannot dismiss. I think that's every musician's desire. Yeah. And imagine being Paul McCartney where every song, nearly every nearly. song you've written is one that the world couldn't dismiss. I, I, I wonder, I truly do wonder if he understands uh, what he's done. You know. Yeah, I'm sure he's had a few quiet moments. Where the can... weight of it, you know. Because... Yeah. There, there just won't be anything else like that ever no, again. No, I don't think so. And, you know, to kind of go back to the Beatles in the early days, um, I've thought often about this. You know, if you read and if you learn about how they were making albums back then, uh, you know, they, it was like a nine-to-five job. It was like, okay, well, we come to the studio today and we're going to do four songs and put those on the shelf, and then tomorrow we're going to do another four songs. And, like, and they did that. So... Beatles were together from what, like sixty to sixty-nine, sixty-one to sixty-nine. Well, they officially announced they're quitting in April of seventy. So yeah, yeah, about ten years. And how many albums did the Beatles put out? Well, that's hard to say because yeah. they're different in yeah. America than in England. Yeah, but, you know, now they've I think created some sort of core thing, but then they've added to it. So, sure, I don't know. Maybe, you know, they were some years they put out two albums. Yeah, that's so. That's my point. Is so, it's like what band? And then they put out singles that yeah. they wouldn't put on their album. Yeah. Because they thought that was cheating the customer. Like you bought the single, now we come out with the album, and that song is on there, so you didn't have to buy the single. So we'll leave it off and give you another new song. song yeah. Or two more songs in place of that. They were they were quite amazing. What, and, what and band innovative. is putting out two albums a year? Today, especially, what what band is doing that? You, you don't. I don't know. I don't, don't think any of them are. I think, again, to bring up the Foo Fighters, I think the Foo Fighters are probably the hardest working band out there. They really are. Where uh, Dave Grohl is quoted as saying, uh, if somebody asked him once, you know, why don't you guys ever take a break? And he said, why would I take a break? I have the greatest job in the world. I'm either always going to be touring or recording an album. Mm-hmm. because and, and so they, they, they put out a lot of albums, but even then, it's like one every three years. Yeah. And, uh, well, and then to on this one, to go to each city, yeah. be filmed, uh, interview all these uh, other musicians to see what how that city ticks musically, yeah. and then to write a song based on what you learned from all those people, <laughs> and then pre- and then do record it and do it at the end of the show. Yeah. I mean that that show Sonic Highways is so amazing. It is. I you know I that is definitely something I that don't I even know what to DVD. say. Yeah, I will too. I yeah. just think it's like a masterpiece, and I loved uh, his um, 
Sound City yes. movie. Ugh. I thought that was fantastic. That album is so good. I, my, nothing makes my heart sing more than uh, watching Paul McCartney and, and Dave Grohl work together. Oh, was that ever cool? <laughs> like, I mean, it was my. So when I I bought my bought the tickets to the Paul McCartney show for my dad for Father Father's Day. Oh, and it was my biggest hope that uh, during the show, Paul was going to be like, "I'm going to bring out my guest, uh, Dave Grohl." Yeah, except you were in Milwaukee, yeah, <laughs> not Los Angeles. I know it was just, but I, I can dream because I the know, only time I, I saw know. Dave Grohl was in Milwaukee, so I was just like, right. eh, "It's fate." But I ended up not being so. <laughs> um, so uh, I, this question, it's it's dangerous to ask any Beatles fan, but I, I would imagine a Beatles fan of your caliber. Not dangerous. It's just it's like trying to choose a favorite child, favorite Beatles song. Oh wow! Um, I think I have two favorite Beatles songs. All right, I'll allow it. We allow that. All right. <laughs> it's your podcast. You get to write the rules. But um, I have an early one and a late one. The the early one is I Should Have Known Better, Mm -hmm. which is a scene in the Hard Day's Night movie when they're inside a little train car compartment thing. And uh, the great thing about that for me is it's, it's, uh, it's one of these early songs. It's got the harmonica in there and... I think George had the twelve string guitar going, the Rickenbacker. Yeah. And it just is so jangly and it just I just love that song. The other one is was more of a throwaway that they used as a B side to let it be. Mm-hmm. And it's called You Know My Name, Look Up the Number. And it's sort of like they're in a nightclub almost performing if for a few people you know with clinking glasses in the sure. background and things and it's uh to me it's just a very hilarious uh, show a song that kind of reflects their humor yeah at the time yeah so and it's little known too it's not yeah, like, I don't think, oh hey you that's my favorite yeah. song you know like i i like I don't to pick not things. hate you i know it's a great song but i don't <laughs> i like to pick songs that maybe aren't weren't like number one hits yeah or, you know, the ones you know my were, favorite as far as i know wasn't a number one hit yeah. i didn't know it for a long time until i started like really being in really into the beatles mm-hmm. uh dig a pony is, is oh, my yeah. favorite song i i love that song um, because by Charles Holtry and the Defes. That's right. Um, and uh, I, but it's sort of like a nonsense song. But like it could be about something. Like it, it could mean something. I would imagine. Yeah. But but I don't think it does. But I it think probably it's just, doesn't. Yeah. Uh, but man, that song rocks. Um, and then I think uh, oh, I'm showing my true colors here. I'm forgetting songs. Um, Happiness is a warm gun. Yeah. I could listen to that song every day. Uh, well, if you it. asked me to pick favorite album, it would be White Album. Really? I think because of the breadth and diversity. I was say, just the sheer amount of songs on it and, yeah. and where they go. And I just really like the production and the hmm. sound on that. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't bother me that they were maybe squabbling and working in different studios <laughs> in different combinations or yeah. any of that uh, gossipy stuff. It yeah. just... To me, the final product is amazing. And I always wish I could have asked George Martin uh, what would have been the track lineup if he had won the argument and made it a single album. Because George Martin yeah. wanted it to be a single, and the Beatles said, nope, it's going out as a double. Yeah. But there's so many great songs on that right There, there are. Uh, Piggies. Yeah. Oh, man. I, like, I love uh, getting together with friends and showing them those tracks off of that album. But... 
you know, everybody knows Obladi Oblada. Yeah. All those kind of songs. Yeah, and back there. in the USSR. Yeah. But I love taking the White Album out and being like, listen to Piggies. Yeah. Or, or, or why don't we do it in the road? Right. I love showing people that song. I love that Because they're like, is this song about having sex in the middle of the road? And I'm like, yes. Yes. <laughs> That's all it's about. And yeah. those are the only lyrics in this song. And it's Well, great. and then when you listen to Helter Skelter, yeah. you know, you're like, this song rocks harder than almost any other song, maybe save for, say, a Nirvana track. Or yeah. Something. Yeah. Or some death metal. <laughs> yeah. Some Norwegian death metal. <laughs> um, for me, my album would be Let It Be. I, oh, yeah. I, I tell people if I'm trapped on a desert island, it's Let It Be. I could listen to that. Because didn't they record that live, meaning they were all playing at the same time yeah. in the studio? For the most part. I mean, uh, it got. It got doctored. remade and doctored by okay, Phil let me, Spector. Let but me uh, let me amend that. Let it be naked. I yeah, would listen yeah. to that album. Right. Um, uh, I I like when I've recorded. I prefer to record it in a live setting where I'm playing with a little bit. I just I just think it mm-hmm. gets a much better feeling where absolutely there's a certain there's you're a certain all playing chord off that you're connected each with somebody yeah. and and uh, you know there's something to be said for the quality of each recording their parts at different times, but. Man, the the, um, the the true rawness of playing together at the same time and recording that, I love that. There's a certain intangible that's going on between each of the players that are, that connects them. Yeah. That just makes that music more special. Real. I think real, real and special. Yeah. And organic. Yeah. But, but you know, I, I, go, I go back and forth because those early Beatles records are just... Where where like they're covering uh, other people's songs. Yeah, uh, man, I, just all of it's good. So I yeah, love it's videos. a great great catalog. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about your uh, you're on a sh- couple shows on Reels TV. Oh right, right? yeah. Uh, tell me about those. Yeah, last year I got contacted by a company that had sold two. Um, Music, well, I would say celebrity type shows to uh, the Reels channel. Okay. One's called Celebrity Legacies, and the other's called Celebrity Damage Control. Okay. And Celebrity Legacies specializes in famous people who have had a career and then they died, and then they talk a lot about uh, how is the estate managed sure. or, or mismanaged. Sure. And. Uh, my role was as a music historian on the shows that related to certain musicians. Uh, they gave me a list of shows of which ones I kind of pick and to choose. pick and choose, and um, so I was on the uh, John Lennon show, the Elvis Presley show, and Kurt Cobain. Yeah, which is kind of appropriate because it kind of relates to my writing and books and sure. past history. And I found that the Research was sometimes a little too Wikipediaized, sure, and it didn't reflect the real deal. So what I would do is they would give me the script about oh maybe say ten days before I was to fly up to Montreal to film these, yeah, and I would go through each of the questions because they give you the question and then they give you their sort of proposed answer. <laughs> so you could just sit there and read it back, yeah, but I don't want to do that. No, um, so. What I would do is research these things in greater depth, and if I found their proposed answers were really wrong, I'd just put a big red X. Or, and in some cases, I'd say, I don't even like this question. It's 
it presumes something that didn't even exist. Sure. You know, and again, that's because certain myths get carried forward over the years. Yeah. Uh, so, and and the other thing was I didn't want to be the guy, the talking head that was bad-mouthing and, you know, ripping. Yeah. I thought, that you must have other experts for that. <laughs> so I got out of that part as well because I thought, you know, I don't want to, that, that's not why I'm going on. I'm going on to educate people as to the history uh, while they were alive. Sure. So I did those, and then I think last night I was on Reels for Celebrity Damage Control, and that was uh, Keith Richards' episode. Okay. That's, what's that show? Yeah, that show's about um, someone who becomes a famous celebrity and then falls off the rails, uh, not <laughs> forever, imagine. but temporarily. Yeah. So... Um, and then somehow rehabilitates themselves and then sure. keeps going again, so thus controlling the damage. That's right. And so um, I did the Keith Richards episode, and the thing they were most interested in because we were up in Canada was the time that Keith got in trouble in Toronto for heroin, smuggling heroin in or buying heroin. And, yeah. and it actually knocked the stones out of work for about a year. Really? Yeah, because they wanted to put him in prison and he had oh. all these court hearings. And ultimately, he, as part of the plea deal to get out of serving time, besides rehab and all the usual things, he said, oh, and the Rolling Stones will do a free concert. And, and he never asked the others, you know. He just presumed they would come along. Well, you need your lead singer. So. Yeah. So um, that was kind of an interesting episode or, yeah. or show as well. And so now I, they said they'd let me know if the shows are renewed for another season. And if sure. so, I'll probably be doing more. But it's a lot of fun. It, they record them or produce the whole show up in Montreal. That's where that production company is that, okay. that sold the show ideas to Reels. And then they send them off to Hollywood and yeah. throw them up on TV. Well, that's really cool. Yeah, it's fun. Like I mean, so I kind of go back to how do you how do you end up here? How, how do you end up doing this? Uh, hmm. I mean, I mean, I, it it wasn't dumb luck. It wasn't like you just fell into it because you. It was destiny, actually. Yeah, I think it really was because um, you know, there's got there's a little bit of that there. I mean, I grew up focused for my whole life that I would work for the Beatles someday. And I ended up working for George Harrison. Yeah. And then when he died, I started working also for the Beatles company, Apple. Yeah. Apparently he told them about me. Sure. So uh, when that happened, I was like, how did that happen? Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's something I wanted to happen for, you know, from looking at the back of album covers in the 1960s yeah. till now. So I don't know, you know, I can't explain it other than I think if you're passionate about something and you spend 10,000 hours doing that thing, yeah. as they say, and nothing but that and focus on it, that you become expert in some area. And as to getting to do something with someone you've always admired, I just stayed focused on that as a goal, and somehow it happened. Yeah. I'm not uh, sure I can explain it, but I'm glad it did. Well, and I think I heard you talk about how um, um, reading back of albums and being interested in, hey, who played the drums on this? And yeah. Who, uh, Who's the engineer? Yeah. Um, or, oh, haven't you? I've seen that name before. He Then you go back in your collection and go, oh, he produced this other album. Yeah. 
Um, so I was just I was pulling up this quote because uh, what you just said made me think of it. When when Conan O'Brien lost the Tonight Show, his very last show, he ended it with this big long um, uh, goodbye, basically, and, yeah. and he basically says, "Don't don't feel bad for me. I, I got to do the greatest job in the world, something I've wanted to do since I was eight years old." Mm-hmm. Um, and then he ended it uh, with saying, "If you work really hard and you're kind, amazing things will happen." And it kind of sounded like yeah. sounds like with you, like you at I think you said eight years old saw yeah. the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and like that's it for me. Yeah. I'm doing something with this. Doing something with this, yeah. And and you worked really hard and um, you know it happened. Good things will happen. Yeah. And uh, I think that's something that a lot of people today in the younger generation don't have. They don't have the. Um, Fortitude, maybe. I don't. I don't know. Uh, you know, I. It's hard to generalize about a whole generation. True. It's, it's sometimes easy to say, but I guess what I do when I talk to the millennials is say, you know what? Visualize what you want to happen yeah. ten or twenty years from now, or however long you set your goals, and just stay focused. Yeah. On visualizing and thinking about it, and work towards it. Yeah. And I said, you know, I think things can come true goals can be met even if they're even if you set them high and sometimes you set them really high and you you end up just below that but still that's a great still a great place to be a great accomplishment yeah. you know you imagine uh, working hard as an olympic athlete and you get a silver medal yeah you know what that's awesome yeah, absolutely and so is a bronze so or just being in making the, the team yeah. being in the olympics I mean, that's huge it's huge so you know i admire all that and i think people should just Think about what do you want out of life and what are your goals. And I think the problem is, is that most millennials, and I'm going to include myself. Have to travel on the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, for me, uh, I, I oftentimes have to combat um, the Veruca Salt complex of... I want it now. Mm. I don't want to wait 10 years. I want it now. My parents have a nice house. Why don't I have a nice house right now? That's um, because you were given a trophy for showing up dude, at the event. Uh, I used to rail against the all the generation. parents. I'm like, what are we giving all these kids trophies and yeah. medals for? They just showed up. Well, you know, I have a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say this, uh, I'll say it more generally. It's though. your show. You can say what you want. I know of a lot of people from that generation, my generation, who um, have that attitude of, I should have this, I'm going to change the world, I can do anything I put my mind to. Mm -hmm. And no, you can't, and you're not going to change the world. Mm -hmm. Some people are just garbage men, and there's nothing wrong with that. We we need those people. Some people are just waiters. Some people are Mm -hmm. just, not everybody's going to... Write three books. Not everybody's going to be the president. Not everybody's going to whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's one of the worst things about my generation is we have all these people who are just kind of floating around wondering why why hasn't my big opportunity happened yet why and it's maybe some of that too is the sort of the instant media we live with too. yes the, I mean, the instant gratification we when have a, as well. when a person with no talent no anything becomes Kim Kardashian yeah. and is a billionaires yeah you, you start shaking your head and go well, when do I get to be that yeah but, but I don't know how strange 
how strange that just because it happened to somebody else, a person thinks, well, it's going to happen to me. Yeah. It's got to happen to me because that's what happens to people in my generation. And it's like, hmm, no. <laughs> it's a, it's going to be interesting to hear what, you know, historians and psychologists and, yeah. and others say, sociologists, about that, about your generation. Yeah. Um, we had some good I music. Know. I can say that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. But so I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know the answer to that question. It's very tough for me because, uh, you know, I'm from the old boomer generation, yeah. and we. I mean, we had it great. We we still have it great. We yeah. probably had it the best, you know, in terms of economy and such. Um, although some of us were lost in the Vietnam War, but mm-hmm. those that didn't have to go or who survived, I mean, we, we've had it really good, but yet we've always been, we've had some sort of work ethic instilled in us that we just plug away at, sure. at things. And, you know, every generation's different. So. I, well, but, I, I you know, know, I think it's interesting. I look at my dad's generation. My dad's 57, um, and his dad was... He was in the navy. He was in World War Two. He, yeah. he came home and was a bricklayer and a and a uh, carpenter and hardest worker I've ever known in my life. And then my dad is also a hard worker. Is very motivated to um, provide for his family and things like that. Um, and then I look at my generation. Like I'm not not motivated, but I'm also not my dad. And like mm-hmm. I just wonder. Uh, is the reset button going to be hit with my kids, or are they just? Is it just going to keep getting? Because my dad doesn't work as hard as his dad did. I don't work as hard as my dad does. So, is there a reset button that gets hit? You know, every few generations, or are my kids going to be lazy pieces of shit? <laughs> That's a good question. You know what I, I mean? Know. Or, or maybe another possibility is maybe your generation is going to hit thirty-eight and kick into high gear. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Uh, you know, I find uh, mortgages have a tendency to <laughs> to focus people. I I, I couldn't. Uh-huh. I don't. I I would probably say ninety percent of the friends I have that are my age are probably people that could never ever afford to have a house. Like mm. they, they yeah. just couldn't um, with the way that. Well, the economy now is made up of lots of temporary jobs. Yeah. And, you know, short term job projects. And, yeah. So, I mean, you can't even get going with uh, the types of jobs that we, in our generation, the boomers, could get full-time job. It came with some sort of pension or retirement plan. It came with health care. It came yeah. with all these things. Yeah. And uh, now things are a little bit different and not necessarily uh, better. Yeah. So I'm, I'm 27, and I still find myself, I, I'm married. Mm-hmm. I, um, I don't live at home, I, you know. And I still find myself thinking... I'm an adult, is basically what I'm trying to say. I'm still, every now and then, I find myself thinking, uh, when is my life going to start? Like, I, I can I can afford to not have a great paying job because I'm still a kid and I can... My life hasn't started yet. Someday my life will start and that's when I have to have a real good paying job. Um, yeah. And... I think it's interesting because I think a lot of people my age would feel that way. And I actually read recently that, like, um, puberty, as far as the um, the uh, the mind being fully developed, just keeps getting later and later. Hmm. Um, you know, 40 years ago, at 21, your mind was fully developed. 
Okay. I think I read recently that it was like 25 or 26 now. I'd heard that, 25, 26. Yeah, and and, I, and I'm, yeah. I'm sure there's correlation there. Oh, yeah. Um, because if at 21, your mind is fully developed 40 years ago, you've got a four or five-year jump on what people have now. You're right. into the adult mindset. And so I wonder, like, at 25, 26, if, if my mind was fully developed then, I mean, sure. That I mean, maybe that could be why. Like, I'm I'm still waiting for life to start. But you know, yeah. I don't know. Um, you know, I have to tell you though. Even though when I was in my 20s, I was a lawyer at 25. Yeah. Started practicing trial law in front of juries, which was pretty scary. Yeah. Jeez, I'm. I thought of myself at 25. I'm still a kid. <laughs> I just got out of school. And I have the responsibility, the financial responsibility to defend this person. So yeah. it's civil law, not criminal law. Sure. And I have to convince these six or 12 jurors that I know what I'm talking about and that my guy should win the case. So, uh, you know, and, the, and at the same time, besides the fact that I was taking on that responsibility, but when I wasn't in the courtroom or working, I was sitting there going, you know, what, what, what is my life about? And what am I going to be? What am I going to do? Yeah. And I think that that's normal in your 20s, the whole 20s, 20 sure. to 30, to be searching and saying, is this really what I want to do? Is this going to be me? Yeah. Who am I? You know, I just think that's pretty normal every generation and I remember hitting my 30s and starting to say okay now I'm starting to figure out what I've I got am. myself yeah yeah um Interesting. I, I don't know. I could talk about this forever. <laughs> I didn't expect to go here with you. Um, well, it, it, your show goes anywhere, doesn't it? It does. It goes I, wherever I, you send it. I, you know, I, I like to tell people that um, a lot of people ask if I do a lot of research on, on my guests. And with you, I did. Because mm-hmm. uh, I just wanted to be a little bit up to date on my Beatles knowledge so mm-hmm. that I didn't look like a complete tool here. Um, but for the most part, I don't. I, um, I just tell people, you know, I want mm-hmm. it to really feel like a blind date and, and just a conversation happening and getting to yeah, know Yeah, it's somebody. as if we met at this coffee shop yeah. and just started chatting. Yeah. Right. Um, so, I, you know, I appreciate, like, where the conversation goes. I think uh, I think my listeners do, too. I hope they do. Right. Um, is there anything else that you want to promote? Here? I just, I can tell people where to find me. Yeah, find absolutely. Stuff. Sure. Um, I have a Facebook page called Rock and Roll Detective. The and is A-N-D. So that's at Facebook. Um, feel free to join in. Um, I have a personal website, personal Facebook page, Jim Birkenstad, uh, at Rock Detective for Twitter. Um, let's see, what else? The website, I have two websites. The Rock and Roll Detective website is rockandrolldetective.com, which tells you a little bit about my background. And... Uh, the other one is TheBeetleWhoVanished.com. If you're interested, you can download a free excerpt of the book and uh, check it out. Is, so um, to buy that, I know that you can get autographed copies off, or at least a year yeah. ago. Still, oh, yeah. Still on, on the, the TheBeetleWhoVanished.com. TheBeetleWhoVanished.com, you can get uh, autographed copies. But you can get just regular Amazon or uh, Barnes & Noble. Barnes and is it, uh, do you have it on iTunes for like the iBook store? Or uh, no, it is on Kindle at Amazon, but it's not on the... Uh, there was some sort of exclusivity thing when I self-published with Amazon. Okay. Because they're in competition. Yeah. That yeah. I, I don't think I can... Well, I believe there's, a, there's a Kindle app 
for the iPad and iPhone, so I think uh, you could be able to download it that way if you're an iOS user. But, could be. Um, so the way that I always end my show, uh, the last question I always ask... Uh, well, I thought we were going to sing harmony to a song <laughs> at the end. <laughs> well, actually, before we get to my last question, I wondered, everybody has a Beatle impression. Do, oh. you, do you have a Beatle impression? Hmm... And if you do, like, I, I feel like everybody can very do Ringo. Good. Yeah, I do George, but... Uh, who's Ringo? Uh, Ringo is like, peace, love. Uh, yeah. I'm just here to have a good time. Yeah, I sometimes do George Harrison. See, George is the hardest one to do, so yes. I want to hear it. All right. Well, this is George Harrison. It's really been wonderful to be on your show. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it's Nelson Wilbury to those who know who he is. <laughs> I, I I like to do Paul a lot. Um, do Paul? I want to hear your Paul. Well, first I'm going to do John because oh, okay. I like John. I like the impish kind of. It's hard, you know. My name is John. Uh, he's kind of this uh, high pitched. You know, I can't quite do it. Yeah, and a little nasally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, my Paul is a total caricature of Paul, mm. and it's just basically Liverpool. It's not even. <laughs> it's not even Paul. My friend made me do his ringtone as Paul, and I, I just <laughs> did. Um, a ring a ding ding. <laughs> oh, we just play some A chords and we go there and yeah. do that. Uh, it's basically just Good. a Beatles accent. It's not even yeah. any of them. It's just you know the. But um, well, it makes you appreciate that guy Stevie Ricks. You know when yeah. uh, Paul McCartney fixes his toilet on YouTube. <laughs> Paul McCartney <laughs> makes tea. I, I saw him doing where, one where he was like making toast or something. Yeah, yeah. that guy's funny. I love that. Okay, so my last question for every guest is always who. Uh, if I was walking down the street and found a cell phone, and it was your cell phone, mm-hmm. and I scrolled through it, who on that list of contacts would I go, I'm calling this person? Who, so who is the most interesting person, or who is the coolest, or whatever, mm-hmm. on, on, your, on your cell phone? Well, it would either be Julia Louis-Dreyfus or Butch Vig, I would say. Yeah. So I, oh, I, it could be Jim Keltner. Who's that? Jim Keltner is the greatest session drummer in history and was the Traveling Wilburys drummer. Okay, yeah. He was a drummer at Concert for Bangladesh, the Bob Fest. Interesting. For Bob Dylan. Uh, he's played with every classic rock. Could um, be Klaus Wurman. <laughs> so I know why Butch Vig would be on there because you have a little bit of connection with Garbage. Yeah. Well, I, well, he's a friend. Yeah. I, well, and so did you did you meet him because of um, writing the Nirvana book? Or just no, I met him back in the eighties. Um, his brother Chris mm-hmm. was a marketing guy at the Wisconsin Cheeseman. Okay, and interesting. You know, when I moved up here, is that the brother who had a club on University? Yeah, okay. CVs or yeah, CVigs. Yeah, yeah, same guy. Okay, and um, you know, I didn't know any of that, and. Uh, one day, Chris and I had been chatting, and you know, I had just moved up here, so I didn't really know anyone. So I said, "Hey, let's go to lunch." Yeah. So we started, you know, going to lunches and talking. We, we both found that we had a lot of common music uh, with each other. And then he said, hey, "You know, my brother's a producer. He, he produces these like punk skateboard bands. Yeah. And these little bands. Uh, some well, because when they when he started Smart, uh, the whole thing was." We want to record local. We want to give yeah. local musicians a, a place to record. And, and they I, did. I think I heard him say recently um, in an interview, he said, you know, because back then, if you wanted to record an album, it, w- it was before computers. If you wanted to record yeah. something, you either went to a studio or you didn't record. That's right. Yeah. 
and they were they were very helpful, you know, in terms of keeping costs down. Sure. And, uh, you know, they did a lot for local musicians and for small local musicians that came up from Chicago to yeah. record here, too. Yeah. So, yeah, he just, um, I remember he gave me this cassette. I wonder if I can think of the, I can't think of the name of the band, but it was something really horrid. Yeah. And what it actually was was, <laughs> like horrid. I mean, it was like anal something or other. It was a really <laughs> hilarious. Something along the lines God, of the I butthole wish, surfer. Yeah, I wish I could remember it. I'm, I'm at a, a loss right now, but it was a cassette, and whenever someone wouldn't show up for a session, uh, Butch and his partner, Steve Marker, who's also yep. in Garbage, yep. would um, write, play, and record a song, a one-minute song, in that hour that they had. <laughs> and then ultimately they had enough songs. Yeah. To uh, you know, to have a little cassette album, sure. Which I think was only ever like two hundred cassettes were made, or sure. Something. But it was really funny, and you know, really, um, you couldn't even tell it was their voices. You know, they distorted it and sounded like they were from hell or somewhere. <laughs> John Jacob, Jacob Lieber Smith, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's just great stuff. So I, you know, I appreciated the humor, sure. and and I was amazed. It was like, wow, they wrote a song and recorded it and did all this stuff yeah. in one hour. Yeah. And it was a one-minute song, and so these are all little one-minute tunes. And so I was just fascinated by that. And then at some point, uh, he introduced me or something, sure. and I met Butch at Smart Studios, and we just came to become longtime friends. Awesome. Very cool. So I know that one. No. Why <laughs> Why is Elaine in your phone? <laughs> Elaine. <laughs> Well, from Seinfeld, she's Julia. married to Brad Hall, okay, who's a huge Beatles fan. Oh, okay, um, way back when when I got out of law school, I moved back to Evanston mm-hmm. uh, to hang with my group of Northwestern friends who had graduated and were still around there. Sure, and one of them, Casey Fox, who's on uh, Wart Wednesday nights, Guilty Pleasures, said, "Hey, I'm making these little home movies." For this group of four people who do these um, comedy shows, you know, we have our own theater. It's called the John Lennon Practical Theater Company. (laughs) Oh, cool. Yeah. So I just went and um, Brad Hall, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Gary Kroger, and Paul Barras were the four. And they were hilarious. And, um, you know, I just started hanging out with that group. And, you know, you'd hang out afterwards and have drinks and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, And then Casey had told Brad Hall that I was a lawyer. Hmm. So he came up to me and said, you're a lawyer, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, all right, you need to be on our board of directors. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So now I'm on this board of directors. I thought, oh, I could put that on my resume. There you go. (laughs) And... uh, then we had this board meeting, and it was like, Jim, you, we need your help, <laughs> like, right away. <laughs> and the problem was they were, like, the most popular comedy sure. group in Chicago, and they were in the Chicago Tribune and all, all over radio, TV. Yeah. Everybody's talking about how great they were, but they only had, like, 50 seats. Okay. So you couldn't sell enough tickets to pay for all the expenses. Yeah. You know, and so uh, ultimately there were, you know creditors knocking on the door so oh, sure one of the <laughs> solutions was we were able to eventually move the troop down to uh, an empty space next to second city sure so that they could you know make more money the overflow people. from second city that's great yeah and, and it just so happens at that time 
the first season or second season of Saturday Night Live had ended and they were now looking for a whole new cast and they happened to go to that space and see yeah. Brad and Julia and Gary and uh, Paul and signed all four of them up and off to Saturday Night Live sure. they went and the rest of their career. So, you know, just I don't got think to I realized that she was on there. On Practical Theater? No, on, here. that she was on SNL. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, for two or three seasons. Okay. In the early 80s. Okay. Yeah. And Brad Brad was the uh, her future husband. Mm-hmm. He was the um, news guy. Okay, the Weekend news Update guy. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because they were very much about spontaneous comedy and playing off each other and yeah. such. And it, that really wasn't the way... Saturday Night Live worked. It's a little more structured. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. But, you know, gave them all some experience yeah. and exposure. And really such. cool. So I just got to know them. And I take full credit for telling Julia back at the Practical Theater Company in Evanston yeah. that she would be the next Lucille Ball. There you go. And I don't think she believed me at the time. But <laughs> I continue to remind her that she did become. And now, now she's uh, the know. Veep. She's, yeah, she's on Veep. Her show, the Veep. Really cool show, yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty good show. Yeah. Well, anyway, we are out of time. All right. Uh, I want to thank Jim Birkenstadt for being here. Again, you can find uh, him at rockandrolldetective.com, thebeetlewhovanished.com, which is where you can buy his book, The Beetle Who Vanished, which is the story about Jimmy Nickel, who was the Beatles drummer for 13 days on Mm -hmm. their Australian tour. Facebook at the Rock and Roll Detective and Twitter at Rock at Rock Detective. Right. You can find him there. Um, I also wanted to say thank you to John's Public House for letting us be here to, uh, and invade their space. Uh, again, I wanted to um, thank another group of people. Uh, it's Lunar Box. Dot co and that's l u n a r b o x x dot co. Uh, they just totally redesigned our website and did a really fantastic job. And I told them I would mention them on the podcast. If you've got website needs, just go talk to them. Uh, quick turnaround, really easy. Nice guys to work with. Um, our next story slam is uh, January thirtieth. It's the last Friday of January, and it'll be here at Johnson Public House, which is nine hundred eight East Johnson. Uh, our theme is puberty, so come tell a story about how you awkwardly had to carry books in front of your crotch to get to class and write on the board. I don't know. It'll be funny. Uh, again, I want to thank Jim Birkenstadt for being here. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure. It was my pleasure, sir. Uh, have a good day, and uh, you know, tell us your story sometime, guys. Thanks.